Mac Power Users, Episode 507, Ian Elsner and his Stick of Gum PC. Welcome back to the Mac Power Users. I'm David Sparks, joined by my fellow co-host, Mr. Stephen Hackett. How are you today, Stephen? I'm good, David. How are you? Doing great, Stephen. we got a guest today. Welcome to the show, Ian Elsner. Hello. Thank you for having me. Now, Ian and I have been talking for a while. Ian is a developer. He makes applications for museums using his Apple hardware. It's kind of interesting. Uh, Ian, tell us just a little bit about, about what you do. Yeah, so that's exactly right. I make uh, those kiosk interactives that you see in museums, Uh, you know, everything from from children's museums, from science museums to historical museums. And, um, you know, it's not just a kiosk. Sometimes it it could be something that's projected or sometimes that it it could be something that has a novel interface, like a connect-based thing. But, um, But all in all, it's about teaching teaching something um, mostly to kids. Well, Ian, every time I try to reach out to Ian, he is like in some other place in the world (laughs) where he gets to spend months at a time at a museum, which I would think that is kind of awesome, to tell you the truth. (laughs) Um, And uh, so it's been really fun kind of coordinating with Ian over, I don't know how long we've been working on this, Ian, about six months now. And we did nail him down, and he is going to tell us today about how he got into development, how he goes about making these kiosks and other museum exhibits. Uh, he's also a road warrior, of course, because of all this. We're going to be talking a little bit about his travel and and other uh, fun, interesting topics throughout the show. But I think, Ian, the starting place for every Mac Power user is you got to tell us about your gear. Yeah, sure thing. So uh, I'm rocking... First things first, uh, the Mac. I'm rocking a, a MacBook Pro 13-inch, uh, which is great. Now, Stephen, did that make you happy when he said first things first and then said the Mac? I, I do appreciate that uh, a lot. I thank you for that. Uh, what what generation? You got a pretty recent one or you got one with like ports and a good keyboard? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Who, who was it that said that? Mac Power uses is kind of a support group for the keyboard. Yeah, woes. I think David said it actually. <laughs> well, it feels like every guest show starts out with a discussion of does your keyboard still work, and and sadly, too often it is no. <laughs> well, mine is a mine is a 2017 13 inch, so it has the new keyboard and the four Thunderbolt three ports. But I use it in clamshell mode <laughs> with a external keyboard, uh, so I'm happy to say that it's working just fine. I was getting ready to ask you what you thought about the touch bar, but if that thing's in clamshell mode, you never see it. Never, ever. (laughs) (laughs) So it's great then. It's out of the way. It's not bothering you. Yeah. And of course, the only thing I I miss about it is the the touch ID. Yeah. I really wish Apple would put that stuff on an external keyboard, but it just hadn't happened yet. Wouldn't that be cool? Do you think security is the reason for that? I, you know, I've I've thought a lot about that, and I'm not an expert in how the secure enclave stuff works, but I could imagine a world where all that's in the keyboard, it'd be a very expensive keyboard, and then it just sends some sort of signal to the Mac to unlock, but I, I don't know, I, I, even if it was USB, like, I'd be fine with that, like, I, you know. I mean, Ian, your your MacBook Pro most of the time acts like a desktop. A lot of people have desktops. Like, I'm fine plugging something in if it would give me that functionality. 
Yeah, well, I mean, I was thinking about the, the problem as well. It's like, how do we do it? Because I look at this iMac every day, and I love the ability on the uh, MacBook Pro to use your finger to authorize things. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, okay, so let's say you did it with a secure enclave in the keyboard. And so it, it, gets the, it gets the fingerprint. At some point, it wirelessly has to send a thumbs up or thumbs down to the Mac. I mean, isn't that spoofable? I mean, I feel like it's got to be security. Well, the they already do it. it with the watch, right? So if you're at your iMac and you want to do Apple Pay, you can perform that on your watch. And Catalina unlocks a bunch of stuff with the watch. That's like, a good point. Yeah. So I don't know why they haven't done it, but we're we're way off in the weeds now. But it makes yeah. me sad is what yeah. I'm saying. So so you've got keyboard number one, Ian, because you never use it. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> okay. that that works for me. And and you know, to your discussion, I do wonder because um, the Bluetooth keyboards seem fine, and we're typing in sensitive information all the time right. in the form of passwords. Yeah, um, that's true. Well, I I'm I'm looking forward to a guest sometime in the near future says, "Oh yeah, I have the new keyboard. I'm still on keyboard number one. I've been using it every day for three years. I'm looking forward to that guest <laughs> someday." Yeah. Anyway, uh, so you're using the MacBook Pro, and then mm-hmm. uh, what else? Uh, what other devices are you carrying? Oh, my my everyday is the iPhone SE, which is uh, just perfect, just perfect, just absolutely perfect. I love it so much, and I've only I've only ever had um, an iPhone with this form factor. I'm sure at some point I'm going to be wowed by the latest and greatest. But for now, the iPhone SE uh, just makes me so happy every time I use it. Hmm. How is that on iOS 13? Is it still fast? It is still fast, yeah. And again, I don't, I don't actually know what it's like to use uh, use an iPhone <laughs> 11. Again, I I fully expect my socks to be blown off uh, when I when I finally get to it. And um, the camera is getting really long in the tooth. Um, I'm really starting to. Uh, to envy those new those newer phones, but uh, in terms of what I do on a day to day basis, I just love having it there. I just love that it's always with me, and um, you know we can get into some of the things I do with it. Yeah, I you know I understand the attraction. Now, are you have you always been like kind of enjoying the smaller size phone? Is that the reason you've stayed with it, or just it's working? And why not just keep going? Yeah, you know there is some satisfaction. I think that both of you have talked about, about just running a piece of hardware into the ground. Yeah. And, um, and also, you know, the new phones are, are expensive. And whenever I do get a new one, I'll be happy that uh, the sticker shock won't be so bad because I haven't sort of kept up with every, every update. Yeah. And whatever upgrade that is, it'll be huge. You know, the, it is true that the form factor the form factor helps. I think I think I'm really used to it, but you know, it, in some ways, it would be nice to have a it would be nice to have a larger screen. I think I think at the end of the day, though, it's just as you can see, I, I'm surrounded by by powerful devices, including my iPad Pro 11 inch. So I'm not really uh, hankering for for any more power in my phone. I wonder if they're ever going to make one that small again. <laughs> nope. I doubt it. I don't think so. <laughs> I mean, the, the the rumor now here in the fall of 2019 is that there will be another SE, but instead of that old form factor, it'll take on the shape and size 
of the iPhone 8, which is now sort of the classic iPhone size because it's been around so long. So I, 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 just, I don't see that that little phone ever making a comeback, unfortunately, which is a bummer. There are people who really like the size, but I think that the market has just moved on. I could be see it being cyclical at some point where they do go back to smaller sizes, but it would be a mm-hmm. completely different design at that point. Maybe the way to see if it's going to come true. You know, the iPhone SE came out and, you know, about that time, iOS got really flat, right? No more leather and linen and stuff. So if we start seeing leather and linen and green felt coming back into <laughs> iOS, it's a sign that small phones are coming back. Green felt is a harbinger <laughs> of the small iPhone. The, you know, it sounds wild, but maybe maybe time will prove me correct. <laughs> well, it, I love all these heuristics to try and figure out what Apple's up to. That's right. <laughs> I mean, the, the, what is it? The, uh, the criminology of Apple? I mean, that's a whole thing. Yeah. But the I, I do like the fact that you've got an older phone and you're perfectly happy with it. And, and that's something I, I do. I mean, I'm rooting for Apple. I'll be honest. I, I like Apple. And I'm not here to, to try and tear them down. But, the uh, uh, you know, there aren't many companies making a device that old that people are still using, especially for a mobile device. Yeah. And, and, and it, it really speaks to, th- to their quality of both software and hardware that this thing still works. Yeah. You know, it's still rock solid and <laughs> right. it still has the latest operating system. I think uh, when it no longer supports the latest operating system, which uh, I think might be uh, iOS 14, I think that's when it's time for an upgrade. Yeah, yeah. good for you, man. I, I don't have that kind of uh, staying power. <laughs> I, don't have the, I don't have that kind of self-control, unfortunately. It's like, oh, wait, they added one more lens? Oh, I need that. <laughs> <laughs> I can't judge. Yeah. No, can't no, wait. You can't. You can't with your titanium <laughs> Apple watch. No, um, I don't want to talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but I understand that you don't really use your phone a lot for the important work you do in the museum stuff, right? I mean, that's really just kind of your communication device. Yeah, it's my communication device and my, uh, my Let's Play podcast and Let's Play audiobooks device. Although I would say with all the travel you do, I mean, I have recently been taking a lot of pictures with this new iPhone and the camera in this one is so much noticeably better than the one that's just a year old. You are really <sighs> in for a treat when you do upgrade. I can't wait. And again, those, the, the pictures are starting to look, uh, look pretty bad. <laughs> I just took some, um, some portrait pictures of, a uh, of, uh, my little niece recently and Wow. I mean, I just, you know, because I have a big boy camera, but the iPhone, that portrait mode is getting a lot better. And the 1X mode with the new phone where you can do it without having to step, you know, step back three feet makes all the difference. Uh, iPad. Are you an iPad guy? Yeah. Yeah, I am. Uh, I've got the uh, the iPad Pro 11 inch. Uh, so this tells you I'm not shy about getting expensive Apple hardware. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Uh, but man, this this guy is great. This is my main uh, travel computer, and sort of the computer that I that I take almost anywhere that I expect to be working. Um, so it's you know obviously it's not something I I take on a night out, out on the town, but pretty much everything else I've got my iPad Pro uh, stashed in a little bag somewhere, and um, and yeah, and it it honestly it does it does. Uh, it does help keep the iPhone SE where it is yeah. because uh, I do have the the latest and greatest hot, hotness. And if I want to take a por- uh, photo in portrait mode, uh, look at that. I've got I've got it on my iPad Pro. 
And if you travel a lot, we're going to talk about travel later, but it is so much easier to use an iPad on an airplane than any laptop. 100%. And I think it's trending, <laughs> trending even more that way as uh, airline seats get smaller. Yeah, and, and frankly, the iPad gets more powerful. But we have something special in this episode. It's a very special episode of Mac Power Users. Because Ian's not only telling us about his Mac hardware, he's going to talk about his Windows machine. <laughs> so... Yes, I'm uh, I'm glad you're welcoming this little this little Windows machine and it is a little Windows machine. Uh this is something called the Intel Compute Stick and it is basically a dongle, but it has a full Windows computer inside of it. And um gosh, it's so hard to it's so hard to explain, but in the theater of the mind, imagine a uh imagine an Amazon Fire TV stick or uh, a couple sticks of gum uh, bolted together. Mm -hmm. And that's what, this, that's what this Windows machine looks like. And because I don't take my laptop when I travel, I just rely on that iPad Pro, um, which works really, really well 90% of the time. But occasionally I just need to compile something on an Intel processor or do something with, with a... With a uh, with an operating system that isn't iOS. And that's where this little stick of gum-sized computer comes to the rescue. And, um, and it's really something. Now, explain how, how does that work? With, don't you work with the iPad on that? Absolutely. Um, the way this works is with an app called Duet Display. This is kind of similar to the new Sidecar Catalina feature. Well, there's one main difference, and that one main difference is that it is it works with Windows. It works with a Windows computer. And so it's it's sort of a two-part app. One of it is the app that runs on your iOS device, and one of it is the app that runs on your Windows device. And it all it's also tethered. So you have to have a way to go from the Windows device to uh, the iOS device. And so with the iPad, it's, you know, a USB-C to USB-C or a USB-C to USB-A. I'm sorry. For the iPad Pro, it's something that goes from USB-C to USB-A or USB-C, depending on what your Windows computer looks like. And then it basically allows Windows to be another app on your iPad, which is, uh, which is really, really fun. Yeah, I'd like to get into the details of that just a little bit more, though, because you've got a stick of gum-sized PC that you're now driving from your iPad. Yeah. So just, so how exactly are you, so you're, are you connecting, what are you connecting the stick of gum to? So I'm connecting the stick of gum to two things. One of them is power. Okay. Um, and it's powered by a USB-C port. And the other is the iPad. And so the iPad sees it as a uh, as another computer, and on a, on the latest versions of iOS, it'll say, uh, "Oh, you've plugged into a computer. Do you trust this device?" Uh, and I say, "Why, well, yes, I do trust this device." And then I open Duet Display, and there is my Windows. Yeah. So th and there's no monitor connected to your stick of gum, right? That's correct. That's what got you on this show. When you told me that, I'm like, <laughs> we have got to talk to this guy. I, isn't that like tickle all your nerdy bones, Stephen? Just yeah, I'm putting a picture of it in the show notes. I mean, it's it's pretty wild because what you've effectively done is you've got an iPad that is an external display for like a headless PC, all in one. And like you said, traveling every device, every pound counts. So you have made the most of what you can do. 
uh, it's pretty wild. In fact, when I saw this picture in the show notes, I was confused. I was like, well, it's running Windows, but that's definitely an iPad and not a Surface device. And I couldn't quite work out what was happening until I read the description underneath it in the show notes. It's like, oh, that's very clever. Very clever indeed. And Stephen, it kind of reminds me of the... Uh, for for some reason, when I first did this, it reminded me of the uh, the Apollo Soyuz program, <laughs> which uh, which I knew you'd you'd appreciate. I do appreciate because, that because there's these two design languages. Uh, you know, in the case of Apollo Soyuz, it was the this American design and this Soviet design, and and yet they're sort of docked together in space. And you know, I, I'm sure you know all the nerdery about how the uh, yeah, how to how to make a dock that would fit both spacecraft. It's kind of similar to sort of bring these two worlds together. Mm-hmm. Um, and I admit it's not always it's not always clean, but there are there are certain issues which I'm happy to get into. The way I look at it is this: you know, a lot of people say, "Well, why don't you just bring a why don't you just bring a a, a MacBook or a, or a MacBook Pro along with you because that's a machine that can run both Windows and and Mac." The way I look at it is that. What's so great about the iPad is just being able to pull it out of your bag and start using it. And that's 90%, 90% of the things I need to do on it are just in iOS itself. It's only that last 10%, it's only that occasional mm-hmm. use that I actually need to sort of do this, do this plug in, plugging in and plug it into a power source, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that actually sort of... Um, so it's a little more annoying, but it's only a little more annoying for that last 10%. And there's so many listeners that like work in a Windows environment, and usually they've got some kind of business app. It's not like you're running a high-end graphics card game on this. It's, this is not a machine made for that. But It's very low-powered, yes. Exactly, but for a lot of the stuff people use to make a living, this is fine. And it allows you to work off an iPad, but also drive that one Windows app you need in order to, you know, pay for your shoes. <laughs> and so here's a tip uh, for anyone who's doing this. Um, even though the touch, the, 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 uh, even though the iPad Pro works as a, a monitor and actually even as a touchscreen, because, you know, Windows supports touchscreens natively. So you can actually just touch the screen with your Apple Pencil and move files around that way. I like to have my mouse, uh, my little portable mouse that I bring along, paired via Bluetooth directly to the stick so that there's absolutely no lag. So mm. it's as if that iPad is just a monitor. My keyboard, my external keyboard, is Bluetooth paired to my iPad, and that routes all of that when you when you have the Duet display open to the Windows machine. So it's really nice because the, say, the spotlight search still works even when you're in the Windows machine. It'll just throw you back out to iOS, <laughs> which again, which again boggles like I was so happy when I, when it first worked. I guess you have to do a good bit of like context switching mentally because you're, you're kind of in both OSs at once. Exactly. But it is kind of nice to be able to put Windows in a... Uh, in a in a slide overview and uh, <laughs> and and have the rest of your machine sort of in the native iOS style. So you seem to move pretty fluidly between Windows and iOS and macOS. Uh, I assume that forces some decisions about the type of software you use every day. 
Yeah, it's it's interesting. I I feel like I was I was platform agnostic since since before I should have even known what that term meant. You know, like in middle school, my <laughs> um my father would occasionally bring home an ancient Linux machine from his university. And, you know, he knew I he knew I loved to tinker with this sort of thing. And I would spend I would spend all day sort of installing various Linux distributions on these ancient, you know, Pentium one beige boxes. I mean, this was this was peak beige box. And um <laughs> it was it was to the point where like looking back, I don't even know what I was doing or why I was doing it. Because I would spend days trying to get a system up. You know, I would say, oh, I wonder if I can install Ubuntu on this machine. It would take two or three days and then I'd have it. I'd finally, finally get it working. And then I'd spend five minutes rearranging the desktop icons and then think, huh, I wonder if I can install uh, Red Hat Linux on this and then just completely blow it up and start over from scratch. And um, and that's why I didn't get anything done in uh, in high school. Yeah, but that's what gave you the imagination to come up with this awesome idea. <laughs> it, it, it really does make me... Uh, appreciate sort of not being tied to any one system. So what next are you going to run on your iPad? You know, <laughs> boy, I would really love to be able to, uh, to natively develop something on the iPad to natively compile sure. something on the iPad. I don't know when that's coming. I don't know if that's part of the long-term plan, but I do know what I do know is that if Apple gives an inch, uh, we'll take a mile. <laughs> yeah, and they know that too. <laughs> <laughs> yes, they do. I, I wonder if the this new Swift, you know, um, initiative is heading that direction. I mean, it seems to me like it's inevitable at some point you're going to be able to develop on an iPad. I mean, they're so powerful. Now they match uh, the speed and exceed the speed of some MacBook Pros. So why not? Yeah, I hope I hope that's the case. I was talking to somebody once that said they thought that the problem was just the number of assets it takes to develop. You know, all of the digital assets to have a development environment are pretty excessive and that the iPad isn't really good at that. Yeah, that's I I th I think that's an interesting theory. I think I think that very well could be the case. It's it whatever whatever solution ends up happening, I really feel like it will open up the world of programming to a lot more people than than it currently is in the same way that you know iOS itself opened up a whole world of computing to people who weren't exactly comfortable with uh, with a keyboard and mouse let's say uh, I think you're probably right do you, have either one of you played with that uh, what's it Swift playgrounds application I haven't no yeah, me me neither. I I think I downloaded it when it first came out, but I didn't really get very far into it, honestly. I you know, I've gone pretty far into it and it's really fun. I look at it like a game because it's like a puzzle, you know, you've got to write code to solve a little problem and the further down the stack you go, the harder it gets. And I would recommend that to some I don't think it's preparing me to be the next great programmer. But it does give me a little taste, and it's accessible to anyone. I know they made it for kids, I think, but for this, you know, middle-aged nerd, it's it's kind of fun. Yeah, that's a really good good recommendation. I should check that out. We've talked about running 
Windows on your iOS device, but but how do you look at the bounce? Like I, I was interested when you told me that even though you have the MacBook Pro, it doesn't travel with you. And I know you spend a lot of time on the road. Yeah, I think I think this is just part of my my travel philosophy, which is which is really like don't bring as few things as possible because it's it always is to me at least it's always easier to uh, to carry less stuff. I think one nice thing about the world that we live in is that it's possible to to get to computers remotely from wherever you are. And, you know, there's all sorts of remote access solutions out there. But the one thing that I've been really loving in just the past few months is Chrome Remote Desktop. Chrome Remote Desktop used to be a browser extension that worked in... Chrome and nothing else. You know, it was one of those Chrome apps. Yeah. But these days it just works in the browser. Um which is which is mind-blowing to me that they're able to put this fully featured remote access suite right inside the browser. And I'm I'm kind of pleasantly surprised because Chrome is not my sort of day-to-day browser and I, I really only keep it around for this purpose, but I've now actually used it in in various museums um, to be able to access their computers uh, from remotely just because it's that reliable. And now you're accessing it from Chrome on iPad or on the, uh, the plugged in Windows machine? Uh, it, sorry, it is on... I can access it from a web browser on a desktop computer. Sure. Uh, in a in iOS, it still uses an app. Okay, but so I guess your this is remote access from your home MacBook Pro then. Yeah, or when I'm on the road to my home MacBook Pro. Yeah. And uh, so again, if if the, if there's just that one little thing that I need to do, it sort of makes me feel better about not having a laptop with me. This episode of the Mac Power Users is brought to you by 1Password, the simple solution for safe and secure passwords. Head over to onepassword.com slash MPU in all caps to get 20% off your subscription. It's iOS update season, and of course, 1Password is all over it. The new version of 1Password has a bunch of new features just for iOS 13, including dark mode. When you're looking at your screen late at night or maybe right after you wake up, you don't want to be blasted in the face by a bright screen. With 1Password's dark mode, you can see all of your passwords with a nice dark screen. They've even added a special dark app icon that looks right at home on the dock on your phone. If you listened to our iOS 13 show, you know that one of my favorite new features is voice control, and 1Password makes full use of it. The new feature opens up a world of possibilities for users who may not have the ability to interact with their iOS device using their hands. Well, with voice control and 1Password, you don't have to lift a finger to search, open, edit, or share items from within 1Password. You can control every aspect of your iOS device, including opening and navigating 1Password, just by using some simple, predictable voice commands. The new version also has additional document support. For a while, you've been able to create documents in 1Password using the camera roll. Starting with 1Password 7.4, you can create documents from the camera roll or use the camera directly, or even pick a file from the Files app. That means you can bring in files from any application that makes its files available to the Files app, like Dropbox, Google Drive, and the rest. 
They've also added the ability to use the document scanner in iOS 13 to create PDFs from your paperwork. So if you want to drop something into your 1Password vault, all you have to do is point your phone at it. If you've already installed iOS 13, now's the time to get the latest version of 1Password running on your iPhone and iPad. And if you haven't tried 1Password yet, you should. It's a great application that makes it super easy to have safe and secure passwords and also store so much more information behind a separate security vault on your mobile devices. Head over to onepasswordcom MPU in all caps and you'll even get 20% off. Thanks 1Password for all of your support of the Mac Power users. So Ian, one of the things that's interesting and something a lot of our listeners are interested in is that you're a self-taught programmer. I think maybe a lot of your listeners are sort of in a similar situation that all of this all of this tweaking and all of this sort of general interest in the computers eventually leads you to uh, figuring out how it all works under the hood. Yeah. So how did you get started? Back in the day, and uh, and this is around when I was in college, which uh, which incidentally, David, is when I first started listening to you and you and Katie Floyd on this show. Awesome! Yeah, congratulations on on a decade. Yeah, crazy. <laughs> I know. Well, yeah, it really it really is. What really makes me a little sad is when I'm like, oh yeah, I used to listen to you in middle school, and now I like work for Apple, <laughs> and I'm like, <laughs> I'm old. <laughs> No, I do not say that to make you feel old. But yeah, so I, I went into a to a graduate program and it was basically something that focused on video game design, which was kind of the closest to what I wanted to do. It was kind of a digital arts and science program. But I wasn't really interested in the video games themselves. I wasn't really into making the video games or making the assets for the video games. What I was interested in was the literature that I was exposed to, the sort of literature about game design theory and, in particular, educational design theory. And my professors were really good at sort of talking to me about this. And one professor brought in a designer at a local museum to talk about museum design and educational apps at the museum. And, uh, and boy, I was hooked. It just seemed like the coolest thing to me to take all the strategies that, that we use in video games, that we employ in video games, and actually teach people something about the world using those same techniques. I, I am such a museum junkie. When I go to, when I visit any city, I want to go to the biggest museums they have. And not only do I want to look at the displays, I just want to be there. If, I don't know. I can't really explain why, but just sitting in a museum cafeteria to me is a pleasant experience. <laughs> so I, I'm very jealous of you because so when you go out and do these gigs, you're, you spend months at a time at them, right? Yeah, only very few are that are that long. And usually, you know, I come back home between between weeks working out there. But would it be okay if I told you about my f my first one? Yeah, please tell us. When this museum designer came in to talk to our classes, I started thinking, well, okay, this will be a perfect thing to do for my classes is to try and make a museum interactive. The people at the museum said that they needed a new exhibit on how birds flew to t sort of teach kids, you know, it's not just like an up and down flapping motion. It's more of a, uh, as if you were as if you were swimming the butterfly motion, it's kind of a forward and back. 
And so I, uh, I started connecting some of those Microsoft Connects, which are the controlling devices for Xbox games, and making little avatars of birds and creating, like sort of turning that into a game. And the game was, could you fly like a bird? And if you did it correctly, your bird avatar would take off. And if you did it uh, incorrectly, your bird avatar would stay on the ground. And it was because of this game design focus that I was really able to turn it more into a game. Okay, there needs to be an objective. Maybe the bird has hungry chicks in her nest. So it's really important that you learn how to fly to feed them or that sort of thing. Or tapping into people's natural competitive nature and sort of make make you have a bird avatar, but also make your friend have a bird avatar and see which of you can figure it out first. And it was, it was a great enough museum and it was sort of a small enough museum that they basically just let me come in with my plywooded together interactive and plop it down in the lobby and, <laughs> and uh, start putting it in front of visitors. I bet that felt pretty good the first time you saw some kids uh, flying in front of your... I was absolutely hooked, and I knew that that's what I wanted to do. So can you describe some of the additional types of work you're doing now? Yeah, yeah. So a large part of what I do is exactly that still, and it's in a much more professional, controlled context. Um, I I work with a whole team of wonderful people who not only help us develop the content for what we're doing, but also provide the assets to actually make it look nice, unlike what I could do, which is literally, you know, plywood taped together. And, um, and so that's sort of a big, a big part of what I do. But another, another thing that I do sort of that, that dovetails nicely is just being a general museum technologist, because the museums themselves aren't necessarily tech savvy as a whole. Certainly plenty of them have actually really, really good in-house support staff and in-house IT technicians. But usually the process of actually installing one of these kiosks takes a lot of, um, there's a lot of things that have to go into it because uh, the museum may have just set up internet once and then no one's ever thought of it again. And so it requires, uh, that's usually what takes the longest in one one of these installs. And, you know, lots of museums do it differently. And so when you're on site doing programming, is it that iPad plus PC stick combo that you're doing the work? Yes, exactly. On the iPad, I use um, I use an iOS Git client called Working Copy. Sure. I'm able to edit my code and commit changes to it. But here's the thing that I've sort of learned that makes it easier to keep the laptop at home is... Um, don't procrastinate. <laughs> when you're on site, make sure that your work is done, <laughs> more or less. Don't rely on being able to just uh, save it to the last minute when you're actually in the field to program it. And so it's also a little bit of discipline that even if I can certainly make tweaks, I can certainly change a few things, but there's no, <laughs> there's no tolerance for... Um, there's no tolerance for like rewriting the app from scratch on my on my iPad because uh, because that just wouldn't work. Sure. So you, you've done the hard work and then you show up with the the light technology to tweak it and get it, you know, fine tune it. It's a process of making sure that everything is configured correctly. A lot of these muse- modern museum interactives are 
ex exhibits that tie in with other parts of the gallery. So you might be making a poster on one station, and then that poster is sent to a giant wall across the room so that you can see your work or other people can see your work in public, that kind of thing. And so there's a lot of networking that goes into it and a lot of things I've learned about, um, about the way these computers work. Almost all of these museums use Windows as what runs the kiosks. And so there's all sorts of Windows settings that I never, never knew about as a Linux head that, uh, that I'm now very, very familiar with. All right, give us one more story. <laughs> you had to have something go horribly wrong at some point. So, so it's, this is not just something that happens once. It's the Windows updates. Windows is very, very <laughs> yeah, aggressive about updating itself, yeah. which, which I think is ultimately a good thing because of the security risks. Yeah. The problem is that it really ruins a visitor's day to see, um, to see the computer go, uh, sorry, Windows is installing updates. <laughs> Um, and it's even worse when that this happens in, you know, the enormous screens in the lobby or, <laughs> or these enormous projections on one side of the, uh, one side of the exhibit walls. It's basically a, um, a pseudoscience of trying to figure out in what ways can you disable Windows updates, um, one of the ways that I love doing, my favorite thing to do, is just don't let Windows get on the internet. Okay. <laughs> so basically make an air gap. And of course, this works with many museums, but increasingly museums are like, oh, but we want visitors to be able to email uh, what they did in the museum to themselves. And so uh, we, we, <laughs> we're developing systems that require, uh, that block certain addresses that sort of have a double hop so that the all of the exhibit computers are connected to one computer, which is connected to the outside world. Another thing that you can do, which is probably the easiest for, for anybody who has a Windows machine in their life, is to, is to take whatever internet that, that is the main, um, the main network, go into the Microsoft settings, go into the Microsoft internet settings, and set that connection as what's called a metered connection. And this is basically so that Windows does, it's, it, it's a feature that's designed so that Windows doesn't ruin all your tethered data by downloading an enormous update. But basically it tells, it tells the computer that don't try to update on this network. And it's not a complete one zero switch if Windows really doesn't have any way to update, it will still manage to find a way to update through that network, but it really, really helps. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder if we're heading that way on the Mac. I mean, with all these security buttons we're pushing now, is that going to be the next thing, Stephen? We're going to have an update every week? Uh, I mean, they've had like two supplemental updates to Catalina already, but I don't, I don't think it's quite that bad. Yeah. Um, well, they're definitely trying to go for a different model. They don't, they don't want to do it every week, I'm sure. So Ian, you're, you're writing basically Windows applications, it sounds like. What, uh, what tools are you using there? What language are you working in? Or are these web-based? Are they running right on top of Windows itself? They, these are Unity-based applications. And Unity is a, is a giant IDE for doing game programming. And what's nice about Unity is that it's, uh, you can develop, you can target for sp specific platforms. And it makes it very easy to just hit a button and say, 
export what I've just written to a Windows mach machine. I use C Sharp, and what I do even on the Mac is I use uh, Microsoft Visual Studio, which is uh, which is actually a really good environment for for doing code, and it works it works nicely with Unity. Yeah, you're getting back to your game programming roots from school. Yeah. What we find is that these uh, interactives are pretty robust, and as sort of we're asked to do more 3D stuff and more intricate, complicated things because our visitors are used to video games, we find that that's a really good way to sort of keep up with the times. And also because there's so much money being made on video games that those engines are constantly getting tuned and improved, so you don't have to do the underlying technology of it. You can just, you know, ride right on the coattail of that. Exactly. All of that optimization, we sort of get for free. And you program it from an iPad connected to a little piece of plastic. <laughs> I love that. That's so much fun. This episode of Mac Power Users is brought to you by Text Expander, a tool that lets you unlock your productivity. If you're on the iPad or the iPhone, you'll be glad to know Text Expander supports iOS 13, dark mode, and more, so you can have your snippets with you in your pocket or your bag wherever you go. And with Text Expander for Teams, you can unify your organization's voice with shared snippets. So you may have different groups within your organization that need to send out uh, similar, similarly formatted content, whether it's help desk emails or public communication. Text Expander lets that become less repetitive and more uniform because everyone is using the shared snippets controlled by you. And you can make everything you write this useful with things like text documents, spreadsheets, web forms, and more ready to go. Anywhere you can type, Text Expander will be there to help. And you can turn your snippets into forms with fill-in and pop-up fields, optional text blocks, autofill dates and times, which I use all the time, graphics, and more. Text Expander is available on macOS, Windows, Chrome, iPhone, and iPad. Visit textexpander.com slash podcast to learn more, and you'll get 20% off your first year. While you're at textexpander.com, check out some of their recent blog posts about making things like invoicing easier and this really great post I enjoyed about wellness at work so you can work more effectively and feel great while you're doing it. So go to textexpander.com slash podcast. Listeners of this show will get 20% off their first year. Our thanks to Text Expander for sponsoring MPU. So Ian, we spoke a lot about how you're on the road using this iPad, Windows, Compute Stick, Frankenstein together, but you are carrying an iPhone, you are carrying uh, an iPad that sometimes isn't, isn't a... <laughs> <laughs> a display for a portable PC. Uh, are there some apps that you have found that make traveling uh, easier to deal with? Yeah. I, I think the first thing and maybe the most important thing when you travel is to make sure that you don't ruin your sleep routine. And I use an app called Paziz. That's P-Z-I-Z-Z. -Z. And it's one of... I mean, this is an app that I've been using since uh, since I've been listening to Mac Power users. Yeah, I mean, we covered this a long time ago. This app's been around a long time. Yeah, I wonder if, if you were the one who introduced it to me. I think, didn't it start on the Mac? I think it started on the Mac, but maybe not. It, it may have, but it's got a great iOS app. You can set a sleep session, which is basically just, uh, I'm going to sleep now, and I want you to uh, to wake me up when when I set my alarm for, you 
plug in some headphones to your phone, and then you listen to this uh, this really, really nice sleepscape. And the app does a good job of, uh, I believe you can use a large part of it without without having to pay for it, but I think that the paid version is very much worth the, worth the uh, upgrade. Um, and another nice thing is that it does naps, which are, um, which are sort of a different, because obviously sleeping is different from napping, it has a really good um, sort of different feeling. And I don't know if it's the app is training me or I have now become so accustomed to those noises that it's really it's 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 actually a really good thing to trick my brain into saying, oh, it's time for a nap. So if I'm on a plane and I want to get some shut eye, um, the first few notes of the of that sleepscape is usually enough to uh, to put me to sleep. I haven't used the app in years, but I remember at one point I had a, an extended trial in the L.A. Superior Court, and I would go, because we'd have these long breaks in the afternoon, I would go into the parking structure and hook up Paziz to my to my earphones and just take a nap in my car with it. It was great for that. And it drops you in and it pulls you out, and then I'd be refreshed and ready to go make objections. <laughs> Your honor, yeah. Thank you, Paziz. <laughs> yeah, it's fantastic. <laughs> Similarly, I've really enjoyed a new app called dark noise and this is just a uh, it's it has all of the colors of of noise that you could ever want white gray pink etc 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 i'm not exactly sure what those details mean but what it does is it it can also give you these nice soundscapes so you know things like a forest walk or a campfire or a rainy day or a cafe or something like that and it really um it really can help you, I think, even when you're traveling, even when you're on a plane or on a bus or an environment that you're not familiar with, to sort of just have something in the background. And what I like about the app, too, is that it it goes underneath whatever audio you're playing on your on your iOS device. You know, not all apps do that. Some require you to only have one audio playing at, at any given time. But I found it's really nice to... Um, to sort of be in a different environment. And I tend to choose the environments that are exactly opposite the environments that I'm in right now. So if I'm on a plane, I choose uh, sitting at a campfire. Or if I'm in a, if I'm in a cafe um, that's really noisy, I choose uh, sitting on a crowded train. <laughs> and it's just, it's just a little bit of a mind trick to sort of keep me focused. And also I'd add that Dark Noise is one of the most automation-friendly apps in this category. So if you want to make, you know, shortcuts, you know, turn that on when you walk into Starbucks and connect to their Wi-Fi or whatever, it can do all that stuff. So it's it's really great if you want to automate some of this. Oh, that's I didn't I didn't realize that. That's excellent. Yeah, they make donations straight into shortcuts, so you can very easily automate dark noise. I've checked it out. I use one called White Noise because it will let you blend two sounds together. So actually uh, looking while I was muted uh, and I use brown noise plus rain. I like the combination of those and hopefully uh, the dark noise developer uh, adds a feature like that. It would it would uh, make me happy because the UI in white noise is really bad. But dark noise, the app you're talking about, it is very clean and uh, it looks great. It's got a really nice dark mode, lots of custom app icons that will remind you of some particular podcast that I may or may not help uh, make, but uh, yeah. it's, a, it's a great app and I uh, they've come a long way with it already. 
What else do you use when you travel? I really like to uh, get as much as I can out of my, my local library. There's this whole wonderful suite of apps where all you have to do to use them is input your library card number, and then you have access to all of this content for free. One of my favorites is called Libby. I believe this is the same company behind Overdrive, which is an app that did something similar. But if you haven't checked it out in a while, or if you, you haven't used Overdrive in a while because the app is a little, um, is, uh, is a little janky, let's be honest, Libby is, is the answer to that. Libby is really clean, really nice, and it allows you to rent books and audiobooks from your local library using your library card. And uh, just like a local library, you might have to wait to borrow something out. You might have to wait to check it out. And if it takes you longer than two weeks to read a book, you might have to, uh, to ask for a hold or an extension on your rental. But I found it to be a really, really good, inexpensive way to keep up with all of my books without going to a more expensive solution like Audible. Now, do you do that on you do that on your iPhone? I do that on my iPhone, yeah. So I have a whole library of stuff. And every time somebody recommends a book to me, I, you know, I have my list in drafts and then once a week, I go in and search for all of that in Libby and uh, and go ahead and get on the waiting list for those. And uh, six weeks later, what do you know it? I've got that book. It's really fantastic. Not instant gratification, but, but a lot cheaper. It's kind of the iPhone SE of, yeah. uh, of audiobooks. <laughs> How do you feel about reading on the iPad? I know a lot of people prefer the Kindle because it's got the front lighting and e-ink is maybe easier on the eyes. Does that uh, bother you? For whatever reason, I don't usually read with with my eyes. Um, I'm usually just reading with my ears <laughs> through audiobooks. Okay, and of course, I do read articles and stuff um, on my iPad. But for for whatever reason, for books, both nonfiction and fiction, I just prefer to have it through through my ears. So um, so that saves me having to pack a Kindle as okay. well. I, you know, I'm weird that way. I for fiction for me is almost always in my ears and nonfiction is almost always with my eyes. I for like a, a lot of the nonfiction I want to go back and highlight something or fascinating. I want it as a reference. But for a good a good yarn, give it to me over Audible. I'll take it every day. I don't Stephen, are you are you a, a big uh, ebook reader? Uh yeah, I've got the Kindle Oasis, the current one, and I read a fair amount on it, but I I don't really care for audiobooks, which is weird because I make and listen to a lot of podcasts, but <laughs> audiobooks have never clicked for me for whatever reason. And uh, I'm a really fast reader. That may be a part of it. That I can read something way faster than I can listen to it. But I read anything long form basically solely on the Kindle. Yeah, I think that's why I like fiction as audio, because I want to force myself to just kind of enjoy the story. You know, with with nonfiction, I will jump around. But with fiction, Mm -hmm. you got to just kind of hear the story. play. are you a fiction reader? I don't uh, you know, I've never talked about this. Uh, Yeah, some Uh, mostly nonfiction, though. Yeah. Uh, You know, my fiction is pretty, you know, space adventures or, you know, sort of uh, (laughs) science based science fiction stuff. Yeah. Well, you should try one. As an audible, sometimes a fiction book, and just see if that works for you. What's nice about fiction reading through through your ears is that what one of the things that I I remember most clearly is like 
where I was walking around the woods or something yeah. when I when I learned about a revelation about Severus Snape in Harry Potter. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, like those things stick with me, and they're kind of more tied to the landscape. Um, it's 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 a really interesting way to go through the world. Um, listening to listening to various books and, and like and you mentioned harry potter the narrator of the american versions was jim dale and jim dale that guy it like listening to him is wrapping yourself in a warm blanket the way he narrates the stories it the the books almost don't compare when you try to read the books in the way compared to the way he narrates them I 100% agree. He he is the canonical uh, voice of all of my favorite characters. And we're going to be hearing from our British listeners because uh, I forget who it was <laughs> that did the uh, the British version. but uh, Stephen Fry? Yeah. I think it was yeah, Stephen Fry. I have never heard them, but it's hard for me. I know he's great, <laughs> but Jim Dale is my man. Other There are other apps that you can use your library card with. Um, one I like is, is Canopy, which is kind of... It's a little Netflix-like. It doesn't work exactly in the same way, and I find it a little a little befuddling at times. But basically, it's a documentary streaming service. And then, um, as being self-taught, you know, in programming and many other things, makes me uh, makes me have really warm feelings for things like uh, Linda's app. And I think more and more libraries are offering. Um, more and more libraries are offering access to things like Linda's app or other online course yeah. apps. And so I would just check out what your local library offers and see if you can't um, start a new routine using your iOS devices to, to learn something uh, every day using that library card. Of course, you could always go to a museum. <laughs> Yes, you could. You could do both. <laughs> well, what's one of your favorite museums that you've worked on? Oh, man. I know you got to pick one. That's yeah. so fun. Yeah. One of my favorites is the, is the new Infinity Science Center in Purlington, Mississippi. It's, uh, uh, S- Stephen, you'd like it because it has the, the lower stage of a Saturn V rocket just sort of sitting outside the building. That's cool. <laughs> Yeah, it's not like it is in Huntsville or in uh, or in Cape Canaveral or in Houston. Um, and so many, many nights I've just been out there with this enormous lowest stage of the Saturn V rocket on a trailer, um, just like watching it get more and more moldy in the southern um, southern Mississippi sun. There's a reason those are indoors most of the time, but <laughs> I know, I know. Um, but no, that was, that was a really fun museum to do because this is a region of, of the country that was directly affected by hurricane Katrina. Right. And so w- one of the, one of the interactives that we did was teaching kids how hurricanes work. And we were able to do it in sort of a game like fashion and I think it turned out to be a really successful, very quick way of um, teaching something that is really complex. And I feel like it. there's a little, in the museum world, there's a little bit of criticism about putting too, mu- too many screens, which I think is a very fair criticism. Um, you know, if we have screens in our pockets, why do we need to see them in museums as well? But in certain cases, like the many, many factors that go into 
how a hurricane forms, the high and low pressure systems, the sea surface temperature, all of that stuff, having an interactive that creates this whole world that children can manipulate actually might be the best way to tell that story and to teach that concept. Well, and to your point, there's some things that can just come to life with something like animation or interaction that may allow it to click for more types of learners, even than if it's just, you know, static imagery that you're reading or viewing. Yeah, 100%. And there's all sorts of there's all sorts of techniques that museums will do to sort of get through to the to the kids because you're right we find in studies that most of the time uh, a big wall of text is never going to be effective mm-hmm. for for a kid or even an, an adult yeah. but instead instead um we like to think of it as like adults like to sound smart so <laughs> so we like to answer the questions that the that any kid might have at that particular moment in in the text that's at the height of what an adult might be able to read. So the kid is like, "Oh, why is why is this the case?" It, you as the parent can be like, "Uh," and then you look around and you see the answer right in front of you mm-hmm. and then you can sound smart in front of <laughs> in front of whoever you're with. This episode of the Mac Power Users is brought to you by Linode, high-performance SSD Linux servers for all of your infrastructure needs. Use promo code MPU2019 to get a $20 credit. With Linode, you can instantly deploy and manage an SSD server on the Linode cloud, and you can get a server running in just seconds with your choice of Linux distro, resources, and node location. Linode serves their customers with the help of 10 data centers across the globe, and they're about to add more. Mumbai, India, and Toronto, Canada will both have data centers before 2020. Linode features native SSD storage, a 40 gigabyte network, and Intel E5 processors, meaning you're able to serve your customers even faster than before. And so you don't have to stress out about overspending. Linode has designed their pricing tiers to feature hourly billing with the added bonus of monthly caps on all plans and add-on services such as backups and node balancers. Plus, they feature two-factor authentication to keep you and all your data safe and secure. Linode has pricing options to suit everyone. Their plans start at one gigabyte of RAM for just $5 a month, and they offer high memory plans starting with 16 gigabytes of RAM. And Linode has a special offer for you. As a listener of this show, you can go to linode.com MPU and use the promo code MPU2019 to get $20 toward any Linode plan. At that basic plan I was talking about earlier, that's four months of free Linode. And with a seven-day money-back guarantee, you've got nothing to lose. Give Linode a try today. That's Linode, L-I-N-O-D-E dot com slash MPU and promo code MPU2019 to learn more. Sign up and make the most of that $20 credit. Our thanks to Linode for their support of the Mac Power users and all of Relay FM. So, Ian, you're traveling around, you're developing stuff, you're putting things together, uh, but you also find time to host a podcast. Yeah, and, and this is a podcast that sort of balances out what I do and looks at museums in a more critical eye. Uh, The podcast is called Museum Archipelago, and I really like to think of it as sort of a a critique of of the museum landscape by sort of looking at, you know, each episode usually focuses on a specific museum from 
anywhere in the world. And more often than not, I'm actually there in the museum talking to someone at the museum, either either the director or a staff member or um, or someone who cleans the museum or, or really anyone and sort of talking about how this museum fits into the wider, I call it a landscape of museums. Is it just you doing these interviews or do you work with uh, with a co-host? What's that workflow look like? No, it's just me. And that's one of the reasons why I keep each show to 15 minutes. And that really uh, that really helps me with the edit and with the interviews because it's really all I can do, but it's I feel like also better for the listeners because they can they they get sort of a heavily edited, very focused look into the museum world. I feel like museums, even though they have sort of tremendous cultural power, and a lot of people um, like like you, David, really you know enjoy the feeling of being in a museum. One thing that I found is that there aren't really that many outlets critiquing museums. It's a little bit incongruous with with what I do. You know, so much of my day job is, you know, this is the truth that is being presented. Um, But I find it, it sort of works both ways. It really sort of, my, my job makes me have sort of an insight into what's actually going on behind the scenes at the museum, which I can then share with my audience. Yeah, that makes sense. And you know, what's interesting, first of all, it's a great podcast. I would recommend it. I was, I was listening to it this morning. Oh, thank you. But the, uh, but you talked earlier when you go on the road, you don't have a MacBook and a bunch of, you know, MacBook like recording gear with you, but you still record these shows on the road. So you are a rare breed. You are an iPad podcaster. I like being an iPad podcaster because this is another thing that I was self-taught at. And whenever I learned it, I just learned to do it on an iPad um, around the time that an Apple, the Apple Pencil came out. And so it was just this perfect mix of, oh, well, I'll learn something new and I'll do it with an Apple Pencil. And when I look at other people editing with a keyboard and mouse, I think, wow, that, I mean, they look like they're really doing it quickly, but I'm, I feel like I am... Um, I'm just as fast with that with that iPad and pencil. Another bonus is I get to uh, I get to edit podcasts on a plane, um, which is which is much easier to do with just a little tablet. Yeah, it's not great on a 15 inch MacBook Pro. I can tell you. <laughs> have you ever, uh, Stephen? Have you ever edited a podcast uh, lying uh, lying face up on the couch? Uh, no, no, that, that is tricky <laughs> with a MacBook Pro. You really could hurt yourself. You could suspend it. I could see. I could see a way this would work. Build some sort of rig. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> First, you'd have to, you know, have the rig. Then you'd have to weld your MacBook Pro to the rig. Mm-hmm. But we could make it work. <laughs> yeah, but but it, it is becoming more of a thing now to do not just podcasts, but any kind of you know decent audio is is very possible now. Not only to record it with the iPad, but also to edit it. Could you talk to your workflow for us? Yeah, yeah. So the recording workflow, I have two two microphones. One is sort of my tiny microphone that I keep with me everywhere which is called the Shure MV88, but it plugs into a lightning port. Um, okay. And it has really good audio. Shure has its own iOS app. And because I always have my phone with me, 
I, in a pinch, I can always, or if I go into a museum and, you know, when I'm not expecting to, um, as happens sometimes, uh, I know I always have this ability to, uh, to record. But just recently, as I'm sort of upgrading and, and trying to improve, improve the podcast, I got the Zoom H4N Pro Handy Recorder, it's called. And so this doesn't really jive with my, uh, my desire to l- bring less stuff with me, <laughs> but, but it's so good and the audio is, is so much better that, um, that it does have a special place in my bag now. So do you do you just hold the zoom up or do you connect a microphone to it? If I'm if I'm on the road, um, I have one of I have a portable little gorilla pod stand that I that I mounted on and just use it not plugged into a microphone. But if I'm in my if I'm in my recording studio, then I can use the the zoom and plug in an XLR cable with a microphone directly into it and it'll record um, and it'll present itself as a USB interface to a uh, to a uh, a Mac. Now I have the original generation Zoom H4. Uh, the new one I think is better, as I understand, it has even interchangeable heads. But the the version I have has um, basically bolted onto it two microphones that intersect each other. And if you look at it in an X-ray, it looks remarkably like a taser. <laughs> and over the years of carrying that to Macworld and WWC, I've got so much love from our friends at TSA that they just they love that every time I pack that. It got so bad that I now now when I carry it, I literally put it in its own bin and just run it through. Uh huh. You you're you're anticipating their response. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but it is it does it does get the audio that you need. Yeah. And then because it records to an SD card on the road, you know, usually on on the bus back from an interview, I just go ahead and plug in that SD card to the USB-C port using one of those um the camera connection using one kit. of those adapt yeah. camera connection kit. I put it on my iPad and then have it sync with Dropbox. Yeah. And then I just know that now that I have multiple copies of that file and next time I have some time to edit, I can go ahead and, and start right away. I actually think that that's wise. I mean, I understand the sex appeal of having the microphone plugged directly into your iOS device. But, you know, iOS audio doesn't necessarily mean you have to do the capture on the device. And having a dedicated recorder can make a lot of sense because that one in particular, like you can plug it into a board. I mean, it just has so much more flexibility for someone who's trying to do good audio on the road. I, I think you made the wise choice buying it. And there's another there's another reason, too, that I found really useful. It's that um, when if my phone or my iPad is my microphone, then I can't take notes or look at my pre um, premeditated questions because I can't I can't touch the microphone when I'm using it. Yeah. That'll be really unpleasant for my listeners. So having that as a separate thing and then holding the iPad in and and going through my premeditated questions, I found to be a good a good solution. As the resident audio nerd, Stephen, your thoughts on the Zoom and the portable recorders like this? Oh, it's great. I mean, I've got the big brother of this and have used it 
a bunch of different places. And what's cool is that it's got the built-in microphones or you can run your own into it. Like you said, the flexibility is really outstanding for the price and the size. And you can run it on batteries or you can run it off USB. Like it, it can do whatever you need it to do. And if you're going to buy a piece of equipment like this, the more flexible it is, the more likely it is that you can use it in the first place. So I think it's a great choice for someone who wants to you do field recording like this. You know, if you're in a studio like we are all the time, you don't need something like this. But if you're out on the road in a bunch of different environments, something like this can make your life a lot easier. I was just, I got an email recently from a listener who was going to take uh, recordings of his mother. He wanted to go talk to his mother about her childhood and all the things I wish I had done with my mother. And he was asking, well, what's a good way to do this? And I said, well, you could record it on your phone. I mean, the iPhone does a pretty good job recording if you just hold it up to her. But I recommended to him the Zoom H1, which is even less expensive. It's like 100 bucks, and it's fine. Just get a big enough memory stick for it that you can record for a while. Although I think the microphones in the H4 are far superior. Stephen, what did you say was the big brother of this? Uh, they have Uh-oh. the Uh-oh. H6. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry, David. It's the H6, <laughs> and it's just it's more inputs. Is basically the big difference. So okay, uh, it's got four XLR in, and then the the top modules you can change out from an XY microphone to a, I've got a shotgun for mine, uh, or you can plug in a thing to have even more uh, XLR channels in. Now, is that the one where you can record to the SD stick, but also pass the audio through to another device? No, the Zooms don't do that. So I have, uh, I've actually kind of retired my Zoom for most of our live stuff, and I've moved off to the uh, the Mix Pre 6, which will let me record to SD and USB at the same time. Because we because we live stream our stuff, we need that that output. Ooh, that would be really nice. I uh, would I be I'll be able to find that in the show notes. Yeah, I'll put the I'll put the. Uh, the Mix Pre in there. I'll put the Mix Pre 3 in there. It's the smaller one. The only difference is the 6 has more inputs. That's really good. I um, Oh, boy. I shouldn't have just bought this one. <laughs> uh, that's what happened. This show, I mean, last week we did iOS accessories. This week we're talking about audio gear. It happens. You know? I, I was getting emails and text messages from listener friends within that, that were within the first five minutes of last show saying, what mm-hmm. have you done to me? What have you yeah. done to me? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, there's a bunch of ways to skin the cat when it comes to recording. Yeah. There's, there's no right or wrong way or right or wrong equipment. As long as it meets your needs, then you're fine. I, but I want to talk about the edit as well because, and I know not everybody's making a podcast, but there's lots of people who have a good use for, for good audio. And Ian is also doing the edit on iPad. Could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I use this excellent iOS app called Ferrite. And what Ferrite does is it it allows, it's really promiscuous about the audio that it takes in. You can even record directly from Ferrite if you happen to be recording from your phone or your iPad. And what it'll do is it'll, it'll you know, it'll connect with the files app, it'll connect with your Dropbox, and you can just download any of those files and start making your start making your show or your edits or um, or putting together the audio of a family member, I think is, an, is another excellent use case for for this. Let the record show. Na- it took 10 years, but we got a promiscuous app on the Mac Power users. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> Sorry, couldn't help myself. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Um, now I feel self-conscious. <laughs> no, but the... the um, Ferrite also allows you to template your 
your show. So in my case, my my intro, again, the show is only 15 minutes long, so you can imagine how long my intro can be if, uh, if I have a lot of museum content to get to. And, but it's, it's still nice to have that all templated. And all I have to do is just, is just uh, ins- instantiate that template into a particular file. You can also add MP3 chapters for it. You can do all sorts of mixing and leveling for it. But even if it's just a piece of audio of a family member, um, I recommend giving it a try because you actually might find it really, really really, really convenient and intuitive to start clipping out uh, someone's cough or or rewording something slightly. You can see the WAV file right there. All you have to do is is just tap on it to rearrange it or to make a splice edit or something like that. And um, and again, because you can do it lying uh, lying face up on the couch, it um, it really it really fits with the way my mind works. It's a great, great app. I know so many people that swear by how powerful Ferrite is. I have it installed. I haven't really played with it. I just, I think I need to do a project in the application to kind of appreciate it. I know Jason over at Six Colors and the Comparable, he really likes it. He's used it uh, a lot and has talked about it a lot. And I've tried it and I like it. I prefer editing with a keyboard and mouse and a big screen. But if, or hopefully when Ferrite comes to the Mac... I could move to it because I don't use most of what Logic has. Honestly, it's it is really really good. I feel like Ferret is a fantastic candidate for that that um, Catalyst mm-hmm. style app. It really it really feels powerful, but also that power gets out of the way, and there's no reason why it couldn't be a great a great Mac app. This episode of Mac Power Users is brought to you by Kensington. The people who make universal docking stations designed to increase your productivity because it gives you access to more ports, making your sleek MacBook, Chromebook, or other laptop as powerful as a desktop. It's plug and play with no driver, so you can enjoy up to dual 4K displays with HDMI and DisplayLink video connectors, plus USB 3, USB-C, Thunderbolt 3 with power delivery available. The Kensington engineering team has three decades of experience with this stuff in high-volume manufacturing of hardware IT products, plus rigorous test cycles and quality control mean all of their products are tested above industry standards. If you're an IT decision maker looking to find the right docking solution for your organization, check out Kensington's Pro Concierge program to test drive a docking solution today. Visit kensington.com slash Mac right now to check it out. That's kensington.com slash Mac to learn more. Our thanks to Kensington for their support of this show and Relay FM. So Ian, with all your travel and all the work you do, let us know some of the apps that, that delight you. What are the things you use that, that uh, help you get your work done? Drafts for iOS is, is great. It's, I think that's another another app that I learned about on this show or in the wider community. But now, now that it's available on the Mac, I'm loving it even more. It's sort of my go-to for all of my lists, you know, all of the books I want to read, all of the movies that people recommend to me, all of the ideas for shows. And it's so nice to have it synced everywhere. It's so nice just not to think about it. 
And it's so nice that it's available on on both of these platforms. I it's probably the thing that's made me made me happiest about my my Mac setup in the past in the past few months. I mean, so often when I'm in the day job and I get on the phone with somebody, my fingers just hit command shift two, open open a new draft every time I can write notes down. And it's just so fast to get in. But it, it sounds to me like you are using it to store notes as well as collect text. Yeah, I like having, I kind of use the archive feature a lot so that my sort of whatever is in my in my uh, my main inbox view is pretty small but I can always go back and search through my archive if I if I need something. Cool. Anything else? Yeah. On uh, <laughs> this is this is a fun. I have a, a couple of fun shortcuts on iOS that I use that I use uh, all the time. My mom really really loves it when I text her that I've safely landed, even if I'm on a connecting flight. Uh, she likes knowing that I've safely landed in the connection, which is which is great. It's, uh, <laughs> but the thing was, I, I ran into this problem of uh, of forgetting to do it. So I decided to tie it. Sure. Using uh, the iOS shortcuts, I decided to tie it to turning off airplane mode. Ah, so instead of instead of going to to turn off airplane mode in the settings app, I have a little shortcut that I tap. Um, it's one of the invisible ones on my home screen, and it t- it turns off airplane f- mode for me. It fills in a text. It a- it asks me which city I just landed in, and it composes a text to my mom saying, "I just landed in city name," um, and then a couple of hearts, uh, a random number of hearts. Um, <laughs> oh, that's a nice touch. <laughs> th- th- thank you. She was she was on to me pretty quickly. Uh, so then I ch- I. Uh, that I was doing it in an automated fashion. And so I, I then mixed up the number of hearts so that, uh, <laughs> I can see that. Yeah. <laughs> Love you, mom. Well, one of the things you said there was it's one of your invisible shortcuts and we'll, we'll share your uh, home screen. We'll put it in the show notes and in the newsletter, uh, you fully embrace the shortcuts desktop life. Yeah, I fully embrace the shortcuts desktop life. And 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 you know, some of it is that my phone I don't use my phone for that much. Yeah. And in many ways it is a it is a machine for listening to podcasts and listening to audiobooks and for starting Paziz sessions. Yeah. <laughs> um and that allows me and that allows me to to use um these sort of multi multi app shortcuts or just single single app shortcuts, but sort of tying it to a specific, a specific thing. So one of my most used ones, uh, it's the target on my, on my home screen just starts playing Castro podcasts wherever I left off in my queue. And, and it's just great because I don't know what I did yesterday. You know, I don't know if I finished the day listening to a book or listening to a listening to a podcast or listening to a song, all I have to do is is hit that button and I'm right back into a podcast. It just starts playing and I can put the phone back in my pocket and uh, and continue walking through. And then you're using the magic trick of having shortcut. You've got a black background on your screen. Like it's a listeners, you can picture he's got a black background, but he's got icons that are just black icons. 
for what we'll call hidden shortcuts. So if you touch a section of your screen, you're actually triggering a shortcut without seeing an icon, but it's just a black icon to match the black background. Uh, any other secret uh, shortcuts launching with those black icons? <laughs> yeah, one of those is the one that that uh, turns off airplane mode and texts my mom. <laughs> okay. Um, oh, you know, one of them... I, I'd be worried on that one that I would accidentally tap it when I'm not traveling and mom would get the message and then she'd totally be on to me. <laughs> yeah, she would totally be on to me. Well, the good news is it asks you which city you just landed in. Okay. It doesn't try to figure that out automatically. Yeah. Which would be a fun way to spend an afternoon to sort of make shortcuts do that. It, it's uh, not that hard. It's, it's just get location. And then with the magic variable, you can get the city. The only problem would be it might not have the right city. As soon as you pull it out of airplane mode, it might take a minute or two. Right. Because the radios are just getting, uh, getting, warmed up. Yeah. getting warmed up. Exactly. But no, I have, I have stuff like uh, enable, um, uh, enable low power mode which is uh that needs to happen surprisingly often when you use an iphone se from four years ago <laughs> yeah i bet i bet so just having having that having that there really really helps you have to email me when you get the newer iphone ian i i want to hear about it <laughs> i'm gonna be like this is amazing yeah. why didn't you tell me <laughs> exactly <laughs> i i i haven't gotten a chance to talk about um my my favorite uh US portable battery. Yeah, sure. I, I um I a, a few weeks ago I got I got a Zendure Super Tank, which is this insane battery. Um also kind of goes against packing lightly. It basically from the pictures, it basically looks like a a carry-on roller bag. It looks like a like, pelican. <laughs> yeah, it it does. It it kind of has this like strong plastic shell around it. Um and it is pretty big, but the thing is it 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 will it will charge my it'll charge my iPhone SE for over a week, which is <laughs> which is just which is just insane. You know, it, it really Yeah. I really, I really like it. And um, another thing that I really like is it has two USB-C ports and two USB-A ports. So I'm also using it as a hub where whenever I go into a hotel room or something like that, the USB-C wall charger that I use is called the, the MU1 International. And it's, it's teeny tiny. It's 45 watts, which is enough for, for anything as long as I don't bring my, uh, my MacBook Pro. And I plug that directly into the super tank. And then I have these three extra, extra ports with pass through charging that I can. Sure. So you've got power going in through one USB C and you've got power going out through the remaining ports. Precisely. And so I can charge all my devices. Or if I need to uh, turn on my uh, <laughs> turn on my Intel compute stick just from that just from that battery tank. Oh, okay, yeah, I could see you doing that. Just plug the compute stick into the monster battery. Yeah, it, it does. It does give you uh, gives you some some looks at the Starbucks. Yeah, I'm looking at. It. I mean, the, it is because they've got it next to a MacBook in the on the website, and it is not a small battery. It is not mm -hmm. a small battery, um, <laughs> but it is it is kind of the one battery to rule them all, you know? Is this your only external battery? So like when you're going down the street, is this thing in your pocket at all times? No, no, I keep this in, I keep this in my bag. I'm afraid, um, 
Yeah, I'm afraid there's no room. <laughs> I, I think you could probably kill a man with this too. So that'd be an extra benefit. <laughs> Features got, and benefits. Yeah, yeah, if you got in trouble, you know, just get, pull this out and throw it at him as hard as you can and then run. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't, don't worry about my, my taser-shaped microphone. Worry yeah. about my, yeah. my <laughs> your battery. <laughs> it's nice though. I, I we did we just did the show on I don't on iOS apps and the one the biggest one we recommended was like two thirds of the power. Of this one, <laughs> yeah. I didn't search for brick sized batteries. <laughs> yeah, and it's it's structurally sound too. You could use it as a as a load bearing wall or, <laughs> or anything. Yeah. You open a can of beans with it. You know, <laughs> no. if you get really hungry. <laughs> Yeah, it's really something. Yeah, it, well, the other thing you were telling me on the phone was about your uh, your love of noise canceling headphones. Yeah, and that's another that's another thing that comes directly from the travel. Um, I think like a, like a lot of people, I found the 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 Sony WH one thousand X M three. These are great names. Yeah, I know. <laughs> um, but it is it is sort of that over the ear style. Yeah, and it is. It is really nice. It really it really turns off the rest of the world. Or if you're using an app like like white noise or dark noise, it turns it into a cafe or a tranquil hike or something like that. But what I'm really interested in, and I kind of I kind of feel like it's a trend that's going on, is noise canceling coming to smaller non over the year style headphones. Mm-hmm. Uh, you guys have heard of this rumor of the new Pro AirPods? Yeah, the r- rumor says they could do noise canceling there. The new uh, Pixel Buds, which will be out next year from Google, they're going to have it. Samsung's got uh, a set of earbuds with it. So I- I'm fine with that as long as it stays optional. I actually don't like active noise canceling, mm-hmm. but I know I know it is extremely pop- popular, especially for people who fly a lot where you can drown out the plane a lot easier. I really like the AirPods in the sense that you can hear the rest of the world while you wear them. Um, the only time I use noise-canceling headphones is really on an airplane. But, man, mm-hmm. I, I hate packing them because I, yeah. you know, like Ian, I don't. I want to take as little as possible. And every time I look in my bag and I've got these massive cans in there, it just breaks my heart a little bit. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. It's, yes, A, um a, I hear you. Like this is—it's a death sentence to wear this, wear these kinds of things walking around in the city. It's—it's um, it's just awful. It's just, you just can't hear anything that wants to hit you. But even in non-plane situations, like like um, like even a noisy open-plan office, um, these kinds of noise canceling, or uh, dare I say, a museum on a day when the uh, when the school groups are coming through. Oh yeah. Uh, <laughs> noise canceling is 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 very much your friend. But I agree with you about the packing. You know, the I think these non over the ear noise canceling buds, you know, they they don't have to be as effective as as these Sony's to be what I prefer to use because if it's 80% of what it offers, but it's much 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 smaller, then I'm sold. Yeah, I'm very curious to see what happens. I, I wouldn't be surprised if that rumor turns into reality at some point, but I, I will want to I'll only read the reviews before I, I buy in. But even if I got a pair of them, I don't think I'd be using them every day. 
Well, Ian, thank you so much for coming on the show and, and sharing your story with us. I, I love that you are driving a PC with your iPad. I think that's a first for the Mac Power users. <laughs> Hello. And uh, I'm going to continue to email you because every time I feel, you know, like I'm in a rut, I just want to email Ian and find out where he is and what amazing thing he's making in the museum. You know, it's just, it's great uh, hearing your story. So uh, thanks so much for coming on. We'll probably have you back on some point when you get the new phone. So we can, <laughs> I think what we have to do is do a live recording when he unboxes it. And there you go. And he takes his first picture or something. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to be floored. Or just even the boot up. I would imagine it even boots up faster. I, it's just been so long since I used a phone of that generation. I don't even know what it would feel like. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. This has been, this has been a real pleasure. I, I'm so, I'm so thrilled with, with what both of you do. And, and, uh, you guys are always coming through my, uh, my headphones and your nice, your nice canceling headphones. My nice canceling headphones. Yeah. Um, you're always, uh, you're always there. And so it's really, really a treat to, to talk to you both. Well, we're glad we can bring you some serenity on middle school day in the museum. <laughs> Whatever thank it takes, man. Yeah, thank you so much. Where can folks find your podcast at? My podcast is called Museum Archipelago, and uh, it's at museumarchipelago.com. And the links to Apple Podcast and Overcast are in the show notes. Yeah, we'll get, we'll get all that in the show notes for you. Uh, you can also find me at, at my website, ianelsner.com. And my Twitter is museum underscore go. Excellent. And we are the Mac Power Users. You can find us over at relay.fm slash MPU. Uh, this is episode 507. Thank you to our sponsors, 1Password, Smile, Linode, and Kensington. And we will see you all next week.